Welcome to my home, and thank you for inviting me into yours. Last week, I talked to you a little bit about how difficult it is to let go of the things that we've thought of as normal, and to allow God to show us how to adapt and adjust and embrace the opportunities that exist in the world that we now find ourselves in. We talked about how God took the nation of Israel out of slavery into freedom. After 400 years of living in slavery, freedom felt very uncomfortable and unnatural to them. For years, until all the people who had known Egypt had passed away, every time the nation hit something difficult or challenging, they'd start whining and complaining, We want to go back to Egypt. Why did we ever leave? Somehow they'd forgotten the taskmasters and the whips and their poor treatment as slaves and the unrelenting quota of bricks they were forced to make every day. Now last week I mentioned that today I'd focus a bit more deeply on the specific lessons that God wanted to teach his people when he took them out of Egypt and moved them into the desert. Now, realistically, the desert doesn't seem like such a good place to be. There's no water, and there's no food, and there is nothing to do. On the surface, it seems like if the thirst doesn't kill you, the starvation will. And if the starvation doesn't kill you, the boredom will make you wish that it had. Why would God take his chosen people out of Egypt, take them through a miraculous deliverance through the middle of the Red Sea, walking on dry ground, and then straight into the desert. Well, first of all, Exodus 13 tells us that God would have taken the people on a much more direct journey to their promised land, but it would have taken them directly into the face of combat, and God was avoiding the possibility that if they had to engage in a war that quickly, they'd simply turn around and go back to Egypt. God knew that the longing to get back to normal would be strong enough to take the people straight out of his plan to bless them right back into slavery again. Second, after 400 years of slavery, the Israelites had lost any sense of identity that they may have had at one time. They didn't think of themselves as God's chosen people. They didn't remember that they were the direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their ancestors who God himself had chosen to bless. They only knew that they were slaves. I suspect that every Israeli dad taught all his children, when you see an Egyptian, lower your eyes, don't look them in the eye, lower your head, move to the side, let them pass, and don't turn around to look at them after they've gone by. If you threaten them, they'll have you whipped. If you challenge them, they'll have you killed. It's the only world they knew. It may have taken God only a couple of weeks to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took him more than 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. It took 42 years of wandering in the desert to erase the memories of slavery and replace them with a sense of having been chosen by God to be his special people. Third, God not only took them into the desert to teach them who they were, but he took them into the desert to teach them who he was. In Exodus chapter 19, God says this to the people, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You will be a special treasure to me, more than any other people. For all the earth is mine. I could choose anyone I wanted, but you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, my chosen people. In many ways, God took the people into the desert so that they would experience just how powerful and capable he was. When they needed food, he rained bread down on them from heaven every morning. When they needed meat, he sent quail flying through the camp so thick and low that you could just grab a net and catch as many as you needed. When they needed water, God brought water from a rock. You know, I remember a child's uh, Bible story book from when I was a, a young child that had a drawing of Moses standing at the foot of a cliff with a cute little trickle of water coming out of the rock and settling in a little pool about the size of a bird bath. You know, do the math with me for a minute. There were about two million people who came out of Egypt. Let's assume that each one needed four liters or a gallon of water for drinking each day. Let's assume they needed some for washing and bathing too, so let's make that two gallons or eight liters per day. That means that in a 24-hour day, you'd need four million gallons or 16 million liters of water. That's more than 160,000 gallons per hour of water, or about 50 gallons per second of water coming out of that rock. Now, I doubt that they were wanting to line up 24 hours a day to get water, so it's likely that what was flowing out of that rock was double that. That's a pretty decent gush of water. God was demonstrating his incredible ability to sustain his people in a place where they had nothing. He was teaching them that they could totally trust him to look after them, regardless of the situations or circumstances they found themselves in. When the Bible talks about a desert, it's always a place of lack and of testing. It's always a place where there's very little to do other than to focus on God and listen to what he's saying. The desert is always a place where God reveals himself to a person and reveals a person's destiny to them. The prophet Elijah, after his encounter with Queen Jezebel and her threat to kill him, runs into the desert. There's no food and no water, so God provides him with water and food that sustains him for 40 days and nights. And then God comes to him and says, and to be fair, this is my paraphrase, he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Why are you feeling so alone and so sorry for yourself? You're not alone. I have 7,000 like you who have never wavered in their devotion to me. Don't let the devil tell you that you're a failure. And from the strength of that encounter with God in the desert, Elijah goes back and continues to be a prophet in Israel for many more years, training Elisha to take over when he's gone. At the end of his life, Elijah heads for heaven in a chariot of fire, and Elisha ends up having twice the impact in his life that Elijah had in his. The desert became a place of revival for Elijah. Jesus himself spent time in the desert. There's a very curious verse in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. John then says that he personally witnessed the Holy Spirit coming to Jesus visibly, descending on him like a dove. Then the first verse of Luke chapter 4 says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. 
being tempted for 40 days by the devil. Now, what's curious to me about that verse is that it's quite clear that the Holy Spirit himself led Jesus into the desert. In the desert, Jesus was able to reaffirm his identity, reaffirm his relationship with the Father, and reaffirm his destiny as the Savior of the world. You know, God consistently uses the desert to do those three things. God uses the desert to teach us that we can fully rely on him. We forget that quite easily, I think. In a world where the grocery stores are always full of food and we can get coffee and donuts from a drive through window, we don't always have to depend on God for what we need. Now, I know there are people who cannot take those things for granted. But even there, there's a food bank and a social safety net that's designed to catch as many of the people who fall on hard times as possible. And the point is that for most of us, the idea that we have to depend on God is more theoretical than it is practical. In the middle of this COVID desert, when the stores have more empty shelves than I've ever seen, and the signs that warn us one item per family per day have replaced all the 50% off signs, it's becoming a lot more important to depend on God. Number two, God uses the desert to remind us of who we are. We forget who we are sometimes. Like the Israelites who learned not to upset the Egyptians, I think that Christians have learned how to live in a way that doesn't upset our society. Don't rock the boat. Don't preach at people. Live in a way that doesn't offend anybody. If we're lucky, they'll see something in us and ask us about it. I think we need to be reminded of who we are. To the folks who are panicking about COVID, who are terrified that a chance encounter could result in suffering or death, we have a message of good news. Jesus loves you. Jesus is your healer. Jesus is your protector. Sure, you can be wise and it's fine to be careful, but you don't have to be terrified. You can face each and every day with confidence, knowing that God is with you. And to those that are convinced this whole thing is some evil government plot designed to lock us in our homes while they take over the world, we have a message that's equally good news. We're free. Jesus has set us free. Paul tells the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up on behalf of us all, is it possible that having given us his son, he would not give us everything else too? What can separate us from Jesus' love? Trouble? Hardship? Persecution? Hunger? Poverty? Danger? War? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. The original Greek says we are super conquerors. We are more than conquerors through the one who has loved us. I am convinced, says Paul, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor other spiritual powers, neither what exists nor what is coming, neither powers above nor powers below nor any other created thing, including a COVID virus, will be able to separate us from the love of God which comes to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then third, God uses the desert to prepare us to move into our destiny. God used the desert to teach Israel they weren't slaves. 
They were his chosen people, a nation of priests and kings. God used the desert to teach Elijah that he wasn't a washed out failure. He was God's chosen voice to remind the nation that there was a God in heaven who loved them. God even used the desert to draw Jesus himself into an even closer and tighter relationship with the Father. What's God preparing you for in this season? You know, there's one other thing that God did with Israel in the desert. And I think there's a lesson in this for the church today. While they were in the desert, God had them build a place to worship him. We refer to it as the tabernacle. And it was a set of curtains held up by poles with a tent in the middle. However, when you read the construction plans, you're kind of left scratching your head. The final numbers are in Exodus 38. There were about 110 kilos or 240 pounds of gold, about 370 kilos or 800 pounds of silver, 250 kilos or 550 pounds of bronze, all kinds of wood and precious stones that we don't have weights for, cloth and leather that was used for curtains and roof coverings and priestly garments. And it was all so heavy. Even though we don't have a total weight of the stuff, we know it took somewhere around 20 2,200, sorry, 22,000 men to gather it all once it was all put together. Here's the question. Where did they get all that stuff? Where do you find gold and silver and wood and precious stones in a desert? Well, it turns out they didn't find them in the desert. Exodus 3.22 gives us the answer. God gave the Israelites miraculous favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The verse tells us that the women were supposed to ask their Egyptian neighbors for all kinds of favors. Ask them to lend gold and silver and bronze and precious stones and clothing and so on. And when Israel left Egypt, they took a lot of the wealth of Egypt with them. Now, when I read between the lines on a Bible verse like this, there's always a bit of a mystery, a different story, if you will. And in this story, it's no different. All that stuff that took 22,000 men to carry, they carried all of that out of Egypt. They packed it with them in the desert for the whole time they wandered around. Now, there's something about that that's a bit odd. When you're headed into a desert where there's no food or water, what good is gold? What good is a bunch of really heavy stuff that you have to schlep around when what you really need is something to eat and something to drink? Here's what I see in that. In Egypt, the focus of the people was on deliverance. What they wanted was to be free, to get out of Egypt. Then in the desert, their focus shifted to getting their needs met. I said last week their focus was on trying to figure out how to get back to normal. In the meantime, what God wanted to do was get their focus onto him. Building the tabernacle, building a house for God's presence was the visual representation of what he wanted to bring them into the desert for. While they were trying to get back to normal, God was trying to create a whole new version of normal. God was establishing a whole new way to reveal himself to the people and a whole new way for the people to worship him. Now, there's an equally interesting New Testament example of a similar thing. In the Gospel of John, chapter 20, in the first few verses, 
the disciples become aware that Jesus has risen from the dead. Then Jesus himself appears to them in verses 19 and 20 and commissions them to go and do his work, to go into every nation and preach the good news, making disciples wherever they go. What would you do next? Peter, who apparently doesn't know what to do next, says, I'm going fishing. Peter was a fisherman before he met Jesus. In effect, Peter says, I'm going back to normal. I'm going fishing. It's all I really know how to do. And the rest of the disciples say, we're going with you. Interesting, isn't it? They've just had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus and been told, go into the entire world and make disciples. I don't know if they felt completely overwhelmed, or if they didn't know what it meant, or if they just didn't understand. But what they did was go fishing. Now, what's interesting about that story is that they go fishing and catch absolutely nothing. Not a single minnow for their effort. By morning, they're exhausted and frustrated and empty-handed. Going back to normal doesn't seem to be working. But wait, there's a guy out on the shore who has a fire going who appears to be looking for some breakfast. Did you catch anything, he calls, and somebody calls back and embarrassed, no. Even though it's in the middle of a huge lake, it's a desert for them. They don't have a single thing to show for a lot of hard work. And the guy on the shore calls back, throw the net on the other side. If the guy on the shore knew anything about fishing, he'd know that throwing the net on the other side isn't easy. There's a way to throw the net and a way to haul it in, and there's a way to not throw the net and not haul it in. If you don't do it the normal way, you're risking getting everything all tangled. Besides, if the guy on the shore is such an expert, why is he asking the disciples for fish? Why doesn't he have his own fish already? Nothing else seems to be working. So why not give it a try? I can sort of see the scene in my imagination. Peter stands on the wrong side of the boat, gathers the net in the wrong hand, then with the wrong foot forward and the wrong foot back, he makes an awkward throwing motion. As he starts to draw the net in, the sea starts to boil inside the net. Five minutes ago, he'd have said there weren't any fish in the lake. Now every fish in the entire lake seems to be in his net. As Peter's looking toward the shore thinking, who is that guy anyway? John seems to have the answer. I think it's Jesus, he says to Peter. You know, when they get to shore and confirm that it is Jesus who is standing there, and by the way, it turns out he did know something about fishing because he already had fish and bread cooked and ready for their breakfast, Jesus again refocuses them on God's purpose for their lives. So as I finish up this morning, I want to ask you, are you wishing you could just get back to normal? I think you know by now that I don't think that's a good idea. Normal wasn't that great. It was okay for the season we're in, but it's not going to fit the season we're going into. What is God saying to you in this COVID-19 desert? What is God teaching you about new ways to worship him? Now that we have a bit more time in our lives, are we using it to focus on God? Or are we complaining about the boredom? What are we learning about God and about the things that matter to him?
What's God saying to you about your destiny? When this is over, are you hoping to go back to the old way? Are you just going fishing? Or are you going to let God prepare you for a whole new way to do what he's calling you to do? As awkward as it feels, are you ready to learn a new way? And I mentioned it last week. It's awkward to preach to a camera with nobody else in the room. It's awkward for the musicians to sing to their phone cameras and stir up the same kind of passion they would if there were hundreds of people worshipping with them. It's weird to be depending on all kinds of unfamiliar technology to connect with friends and family. I don't know what the new way will look like. Like the Israelites heading into the promised land, God is saying, you've never been this way before. You're just going to have to learn to trust me and follow me. In Isaiah 43, verse 18, God says this, Don't remember the former things or consider the things of old. Look, I'm doing a new thing. Where God is taking us as individuals and as a church family and really as a church generally, isn't going to be back to the things that we've considered normal. He's doing something new. In verse 19 of Isaiah 43, he says, I'm going to make a road in the desert and put rivers into the wilderness. Your God is saying, I have a way through this desert and I'm going to provide for you while you're here. God has not forgotten you. God is not far away. In fact, he might be closer to us right now in the middle of this desert we find ourselves in than he was when everything was still normal and when we knew pretty much what every day was going to be like. In verse 21, he says, The people that I have called are going to learn to praise me in this season. And then in verse 22, God says, Learn to pray. Don't be bored with serving me. I think that's a challenge that God is putting out there for many of us. Many of us have extra time on our hands right now. What are you doing with that time? Are you learning to spend time with God? Are you learning to press through when it feels boring and really get to know God? If you've struggled in your life to develop a regular devotional habit, a time to read the Bible, spend some time in prayer, and listen for what God wants to say for you each day, there is no time like this to start. For one thing, many of you have extra time. Some of you used to spend 35 or 40 minutes driving to work every morning, and the same driving home at night. Use that time to listen and read and pray. Some of you are in a layoff situation and you've got a lot of extra time on your hands. Use that time wisely. Now, I fully understand that there are a few who find themselves busier than ever. And we really appreciate the frontline workers who risk their own health to take care of others. As a church, we've been praying for you daily for many, many weeks. And for the moms who find themselves homeschooling their kids, we certainly know what that's like. We homeschooled many of our kids. Not everybody has extra time on their hands right now. But for those who do, let me encourage you, use it wisely. The desert is a time to reinforce the confidence that we can trust God. It's a time when God wants to remind us of who we are 
We're his sons and his daughters. We're overcomers. We're super conquerors, as we read in Romans. The desert is a time for God to remind us of the destiny that he's planned for us. He doesn't intend for us to be afraid. He expects us to be a light in the dark world. He wants us to to be the hope in a place where people are afraid. He wants us to be the source of confidence and stability for those whose world feels like it's falling apart. You might be listening and you're not at all sure that you're ready for that kind of a relationship with God. Maybe the idea of having a heart-to-heart encounter with God leaves you feeling more than just a little nervous. In the chapter of the Bible we were just looking at, in Isaiah 43, verse 25, God says, I am the one who eliminates the record of your sins and forgets what you've done against me. God is not put off by the choices you may have made in life. All he's looking for today is a heart that comes to him and says, God, I need you. I can't get through this on my own. I feel like I'm in a desert with no food and no water. If you're willing to help me, I'm willing to be helped. If that's you today, I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. The words will be on the screen, and if you pray that prayer with me, I promise you that God will respond. God himself promises you that he will respond to you. The prayer I want to lead you in is on the screen. Why don't you pray it with me? Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. From this day forward, I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, would you do one more thing? Would you drop us an email? Send it to office at victorylifechurch.ca and let us know that you prayed that prayer with me. The address will be on the screen in a minute. We'd love to encourage you and to help you get established in your new life in Christ. Thank you, and God bless you today. Well, wasn't that a fantastic word? Thank you, Pastor Ron, for that word. Back to normal. What's it all going to look like when this is over? What's the church going to look like? Uh, I like a number of things. Well, everything that he said, but a number of things stood out to me. One was, we need to come out of our caves because we have a message of good news. That is so true, friends. You and I have a message of good news. Our lives have been forever changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about that message. Let's talk about that life change to all who will listen. And I also like what he said, rather than longing to get back to normal, God is trying to create a new version of normal within us. I love that. But the thing about that is, it makes us uncomfortable. Just like the examples that Pastor Ron gave with the children of Israel and the disciples. Um, when God tries to create this new version of normal, uh, 
we get uncomfortable because what was normal to us made us comfortable. <laughs> but when God is doing something new and something fresh, friends, it's always to move us into something better. I am so looking forward to that. He also said, we are just going to have to trust God through this. And, you know, where is God taking us um, at the end of all of this? We really don't know. We really don't know what all of this is going to look like. You know, there's been some speculations. Um, there's even been some prophetic words. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, conspiracy theorists out there uh, tooting their horn. But friends, in the end, God knows where he is wanting to lead us and what he's wanting to do in us. So can I end the service today by praying over you? One of the things Pastor Ron said right at the end, I hope you caught it, is the desert is the time where God reminds us of our destiny. And that's what I want to pray over us this morning as we we close out the service. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you for those who uh, were involved in the service today in, in every way. Thank you, the tech team, everybody. God bless you. We love you guys. Now let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for everyone listening. God, that through these unique times that we are living in, this kind of a desert place that we find ourselves in, I pray that it would be a time where we are reminded of the destiny that God has for each and every one of us. God, a destiny that will propel us into our future. God, I thank you that you're revealing uh, that destiny to us in unique ways. Father, I think of those who are uh, in grade 12 and readying to go into university. I pray that you would show them their destiny in life and what that is to look like, Father. I pray for those in business, God, that you would show them their destiny and what you've purposed for them. God, I pray for those who are rich in material things, rich in money. God, I pray that you would show them their destiny and what you have called them to do. God, for those frontline workers who are working in um, the retail industry and having to deal with uh, customers week in and week out through this crisis, I pray that you would show them their destiny. Father, for the uh, uh, parents who are at home homeschooling their kids while trying to hold down their jobs at the same time, I pray that you would show them their destiny through this. God, I thank you that you have a destiny for each and every one of us. And I thank you through these times, through this desert time that we're in. God, I thank you that you're revealing it to us uh, on a day-by-day -day basis. 
And I thank you for it, Father. And I thank you for every person listening, wherever they're at in life, whatever their struggle is. I thank you that you are their great overcomer. And I declare victory and freedom and health and healing in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. (laughs) Hey, thanks for joining us. Man, these are unique times praying for you. Over the airways like this is kind of freaky. It's different. I never thought I'd do it, to be honest. And, you know, like Pastor Ron said, having to preach and talk to you uh, in front of a camera, it's different. It's it's very unique. Uh, but I pray by the grace of God you're receiving uh, the messages and that it's going, um, it's, it's, it's penetrating into your heart and into your life. God bless you. We love you. And uh, we will see you again next week. Have a great week. Bye for now.